The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Our identity based upon. Usually, we construct the sense of self in relationship to whatever is being known. It might be in relationship to our roles. Okay, right now I'm functioning as the teacher. Martha is the manager. Somebody here might be a doctor, might be a nurse, might be an administrator, might be a soldier. We might construct our identity in relationship to past experiences, the achievements and accomplishments we've made, or our dreams for the future and the plans that we make. We might construct our identity through relationships. I am a sister. I am a daughter. I am a friend. We might um, construct our identity through the way we relate or possess a kind of Um, national identity, an identification with our nation state, our culture, or our religious heritage. I am Jewish, I am Catholic, I am Muslim, I am Armenian, I am French, I am Italian. What do we take to be ourselves? Some people construct their identity through Explicit belonging, you know, belonging to a social order, uh, a social club, a fraternal organization, a political party. I am a Republican. I am a Democrat. I belong to the Green Party. How strong is the identification based on these designations? Or perhaps do you identify as being a member of a Vipassana Sangha? There's a tendency among human beings to identify with limited and recognizable aspects of being something or someone, as though we really are that little blurb that introduces us. Although, thank you for the nice blurb that introduced me. But you might sometimes go to a party, and it's not so much the custom anymore, but I really appreciate the more formal custom is when, you, when you're at a gathering, you introduce somebody to somebody else. Like if you know somebody, it's, um, it's, it's um, customary and considerate to say, oh, so-and-so, this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so. But instead of just saying their names, you say, this is so-and-so who does this and is interested in that, and then this is so-and-so who likes this and is interested in that. So you give them immediately something to talk about, something in common. Now, that's a skillful social um, networking uh, ability. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to do. But do you actually believe that that's who you are? is the way people introduce you. Sometimes we hear gossip about us. Sometimes there's praise about us. So the gossip or the talk about us could be positive or it could be negative, but it's usually just the opinion of somebody else. Do you identify? Do you even want to be what somebody else wants you to be or sees you as. Oh, she's intellectual. She's compassionate. 
This is a difficult person. She's depressed. Oh, this is a hot, fascinating, intriguing person. This is a loser or a high achiever. This is a brave person or a scaredy cat. What do we build our identity upon? What do we become? We can ask ourselves in the midst of a thought, in the midst of an experience, right during the course of a conversation that we're having, or while we're on the treadmill at the gym, we can ask ourselves questions like, am I this thought? Am I this feeling? Is this emotion who I am? What about this pain, this sensation? Is this really me and mine? When we engage in a meditative inquiry, we must look below the surface of our social, mental, and bodily experiences so that we can discover something profounder than our preconceived concepts and fixed ideas of who we are and how we are. We, we can discover something that is not described by our life story that's not expressed by our self-image, that has nothing to do with our successes and our failures, and it's not based on judgment or comparison, and not conditioned by the desires that we have or the desires and expectations of others in our family or our social group. I don't know how many of you remember those old Monty Python movies. Um, I was giving a talk about self some years ago, and a friend came up to me and said, do you remember that Monty, Monty Python movie? And you might remember it. It was one where there was a party of explorers in the, um, in a, a, exploring the jungle, but they got lost. And they were thrashing all around, desperately lost, until finally they realized that they were being filmed. And so all they had to do was find the cameraman to figure out where they were and who they, who they were. <laughs> so they found the cameraman, but then they realized that they were still lost. And so then they wondered, now who's filming us? And so it went on and on in that kind of, of a never-ending loop until finally the police arrived on the scene and arrested them all for the crime of being too (laughs) self-referential. So, what does self refer to? What are we referring to when we're self-referential? What do you feel when you have a sense of self? What is this arising of selfing? Most meditators will describe it as a kind of contraction, a kind of grasping that's almost recognizable or perceivable in the mind. It might even be painful, a restrictive sense of distinct separation, of being other than, of being distinct from. We can look at that experience of the self-concept arising and observe what is this self-grasping. 
And when it occurs, what else is happening? What do we find in that experience? Generally, we're grasping some experience and taking it to be I, me, or mine. Shantideva said, As the cause of all suffering, I know only one cause, and that is clinging to the notion of self. He positions it as a kind of root cause out of which all suffering arises. Now, in the classic Buddhist teachings, the the Buddhist lists list four kinds of clinging, four kinds of attachment. Some of you might remember what these are. Clinging to sensory pleasures. Clinging to views and opinions. Clinging to observances, rites and rituals. And clinging to the concept of self. When we cling to the concept of self, we identify with our feelings and our senses and any experience at all as my experience. My pain, my thoughts, my insight. This is happening to me. I am doing that. I want this. Not just worldly things, but meditative accomplishments we can also cling to and claim as our own and use as a basis for self-construction. I want the experience of concentration. I want to be enlightened. The problem is I never gets enlightened. Do you want to be the most mindful person? Has that thought ever arisen? Maybe you don't want to admit it, but maybe you're doing slow walking meditation. You're really concentrated, and the day is going really well. And everybody else, they get, get up, and they just walk right by you, and there's this sense of pride. I am so mindful today. <laughs> Look at me. We can identify also with our views and our opinions. This thought, I think we should, or... My view is this, I believe in this. And it doesn't matter if we believe that we're a Buddhist or we believe, or we believe in Buddhism or we believe in science. It might still be functioning as a belief, as a place where we construct an identity. I am a scientist. I am a Buddhist. We can identify with our ways of doing things, the methods, the techniques, the patterns that we follow, the rituals that we perform. And we can identify also with a sense of consciousness, of knowing, not just experiencing knowing and being conscious, but we become the observer, the witness, the owner of experience. And so through meditation, we examine, we investigate. We don't try to get rid of identification because actually there's nothing to eliminate and there's nothing that we can get rid of. This is a nonviolent exploration 
a non-violent investigation. So it's important that you don't come to this um, investigation with the idea of, I'm going to obliterate my ego. Instead, we are curious and we look into the nature of things. We explore our experience so that we can see through delusion and beyond clinging. We can see through the delusions of self. Through meditative investigation, we incline our practice to look directly at this process of eye-making and mind-making to see how it functions, what it rests upon, and what it produces. With interest, we can keep a lookout for this construction of self-grasping so that we learn what it is and how it operates, what it feeds on, what it leads to, and how it ceases. We can intentionally investigate, even experiment, so that we can see when and how self-constructs arise. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to sit up here or over there and ring the bell. But sometimes when people undertake a a, a task like that, it's not really complicated. You keep an eye on the time and you ring the bell. Just ringing the bell, putting a sound into the room where a large group of people here can suddenly give rise to a sense of self. It's worth volunteering to do if there's a bell ringing opportunity to see if, how do you play with that? Is it just a sound that you're hearing? Or are you wondering, did I ring it right? Did people like that? Was I on time? Oh, oh. And how many times do you look at your clock more frequently if you're responsible for it? You know, these little things that we don't realize how much we invest or build a sense of self upon about being competent. When I trust that everybody who volunteers to ring the bell is quite capable of it. And yet sometimes we worry that even that we won't do right. And so we check three, four, five, six times to see is it time yet. Now, I'm just using that as a simple example. Um, But, you know, you might sometimes have an announcement to make. And you have to hold that little microphone and make the announcement. Are you nervous? Sometimes we're nervous to speak in front of a group. And what is that arising. Why are we nervous? You know, they say that public speaking is one of the big fears. What if you have a question to ask and you really want to ask the question and there's a question and answer period and the teacher's sitting up here waiting for a question, wanting a question, hoping for a question, but you don't ask your question. You wait until it ends and then you come up and ask your question privately. What is that about? It's interesting to see how sometimes we stop ourselves from learning and growing because we're afraid of how we might appear. That's selfing. That's an opportunity to explore the construction of self. But what about other things? Maybe there's some clothing that that was given to you as a gift, you know, maybe by some relative who doesn't know who you are. And you wouldn't be caught dead in that clothing. Well, could you dare wear that shirt? Or that jacket or that sweater or that pants? 
Why wouldn't you be caught dead in it? It's just clothing. It's just cloth that we put on our bodies to stay warm. If you always sit on the floor, but you have a little pain, is it a little embarrassing for you to take the chair? What if you have some extra time and you're out in a park and you have some time to sit and meditate? Do you take the opportunity or are you afraid somebody might think you're meditating? Or do you just meditate in a really relaxed position with your legs crossed and a newspaper here? (laughs) So that you don't look like you're meditating. I think it's worth sometimes doing things that will either trick that will trigger a sense of self-consciousness so that we can work with this arising of self. Now, there are some other things I wouldn't suggest doing intentionally, but should they happen, they're great opportunities. Um, Have you ever gotten a cup of coffee or been going through a cafeteria line and you drop your cup of coffee or you drop your tray and everybody in the building or the room or the break room looks, turns and looks at you? And then immediately, some people have this thought, oh, they they act like they didn't do it. (laughs) They didn't do it. Somebody else did it. (laughs) So anything that gives rise to this sense of self is a time to stop and look at, oh, what is that? What is that process? Because very often, we sustain our identity through many, many, many different movements of mind throughout a day. Some of those movements of mind are comparisons. Better than, worse than, or equal to. Even in the silence of a meditation retreat, comparisons can fester. I'm more concentrated than the person next to me who's just moved six times. Or, oh, that person came into the meditation hall was, was sitting before I came into the meditation hall, and they're sitting when I leave. I'll never learn to meditate. They're so much better than me. I'm so much worse. And you might, you might be aware that I frequently teach um, retreats that develop um, a systematic stages of concentration, of deep absorption, called jhana. jhana. And I love these practices. They've made an enormous um, uh, difference into deepening in my own practice. So I like to make them available to, to students. So I offer, I, every year I offer 10-day retreats to develop concentration and jhana. But I always say, and I truly mean it, and I probably say it in one way or another every day on the retreat, that it doesn't matter if somebody attains jhana. Because what we're developing are meditative skills using that particular practice. And the conditions will actually only come together for some small portion of the people on any particular retreat. That's the nature of things, right? You know, conditions come together, they ripen in their own time. We don't sign up for a jhana retreat and expect that there's a guarantee to get jhana. There's no money-back guarantee. 
because the practice is to deepen concentration. It's not to attain any particular stage or state or temporary experience. It's just that the practices that are designed to attain those depths of concentration are brilliant practices that deepen samadhi that will be useful in every aspect of our lives. And a few people will have the conditions come together on those retreats to experience something that they have never experienced before, something so far beyond sensual pleasures that it is extraordinary. But what happens an awful lot with any system that has these signposts, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, is that people come to the retreat, they figure it's a 10-day retreat, there are four jhanas, Let's see, I'll take a day to warm up. That leaves two days for the first jhana, two days for the second jhana, two days for the third jhana, two days for the fourth jhana, and then I'll come out and integrate on the, you know, the last day. And They have a plan. Well, guess what that leads to? Disappointment, of course. We have to be watchful of this desire to have specific steps to accomplish Not that there's anything wrong with having a clear path, because the Dhamma, there are clear patterns in the development of meditation. Some teachers like to lay those out, (laughs) and some teachers like to know them themselves (laughs) and not lay them out. But what is the difference? Actually, the practice unfolds as it will in both modes. But if the student knows those steps, one has to be diligent to work with the expectation and the comparison. I am succeeding now because this signpost arose in my meditation practice, and I am failing now because it didn't. So whenever we work with a system that uses clear signposts, of the, of the unfolding of the path, then it's important that parallel to that, we sustain an insight practice that looks at this potential for the arising of self, of grasping, of comparing, and that we let go of the comparing mind every time it arises. Because expectation and hope can sometimes give rise to excitement and pride, when it's going the way we want it to. But the flip side of that, the other side of the very same coin, is that it gives rise to disappointment and despair when things are not going the way we want them to. But what do we really do when we meditate? We just sit down. We just feel and know what is actually happening. In a way, we mind our own business. How many times do we find our minds minding somebody else's business? Not our own business. If there's aversion to another meditator, you're minding somebody else's business because the mind has strayed. It's not your concern if somebody else coughs or if they come in late. So sometimes when I enter into meditation retreats, I have this little mantra, not my business, not my business. And when the mind goes someplace that is not my business, which means 
anything that goes into desire, aversion, reactivity, comparison. Not my business. I use this as a way of setting a boundary because I think skillful boundaries are very important. We can set a skillful boundary around what is worthy of distracting me from my meditation object. Some things might be worth distracting me, but a lot of things are not. Fire, the fire alarm might be. But whether somebody comes in late, whether I compare myself as better than or worse than, these patterns and these tendencies are not worth distracting me from the task that I've set, from the reason I've sat down to meditate. Now, sometimes when couples come on retreats, they have to work very diligently with the boundaries around their own minds because we're sensitive especially to the moods and emotions and, and feelings and expressions of uh, people around us, but most especially to the people that we know and love and care about around us. And it can easily happen that one partner on a, re- on a retreat starts to have an emotional experience and maybe um, is crying. And then there might be the thought by, say, say the husband is crying and the wife sees it and thinks, oh, I wonder if he's okay. I wonder what he's grieving about. Maybe he's dealing with the issues of, his mother, of the loss of his mother last year or of maybe the, the goldfish that died two weeks ago. Or maybe he's grieving um, the, the retirement that's coming up, the loss of an identity around work that's coming up next year. What's the grieving about? Oh no, maybe he's not maybe he's not sad. Maybe he's actually angry and he's thinking about divorcing and so he's grieving. He's he's sad and he's angry about that loss. What's what's actually happening? And the wife who's not having the emotional experience is now having an emotional experience based upon fantasy, based upon projection and guessing. Sometimes if a partner sees an expression of anger on, some, on their partner's face, they immediately take it personally and think, oh, she's angry at me. What did I do? Or if there's some restlessness and anxiety that's pretty obvious in one's pattern, then, then there can be the thought, oh, he doesn't like this retreat, he wants to go home. And then the, the, the partner could do a lot of things to try to go home too. Th- things always happen when we identify with somebody in a context that we then uh, respond to. But often we don't know what's actually going on or what's true. The fact is, is in real life, we usually don't know too unless we ask. We really don't know. So we can watch this projection happen in the meditation. One of the things I also say is not my business is not only the things that have is that that the projections around other people, but also what's happening in my own practice. My duty when I sit down to meditate is to do the practice. It's not to make it work. 
I just do the practice. And it will unfold in its own time. It's not my job to try to make something happen. This is especially important in the development of concentration practices because certain, there's a certain unfolding of the practice where, for example, if we're doing the jhana practice, we might start with the breath as the object, but then a mental counterpart, what's called a counterpart sign or nimitta arises. Well, that has to develop in its own course. But some people know that that should happen, and so they have ideas about how it should happen and what it should be like. And so they sit down, and wanting it to happen, they try to construct it mentally. Have you ever found that you are ahead of your own experience? Planning what you're going to happen or conceiving of it? Sometimes we can almost convince ourselves that it's happened. And we have to almost look, look more accurately and more simply to say, what's really happening now? The problem with this is that it seems a little bit creative, but it's something of a wild goose chase because we just can't get ahead of ourselves. If we, develop, if we rest our experience upon projections or conceptions, then we're really falling away from what's actually happening in the present moment. But there's a deeply conditioned pattern to compare. I am this in relationship to that. I am me in relationship to you. I am short in relationship to my brother who's tall. I am liberal in relationship to a parent who's conservative. I am confident in contrast to somebody who is, um, is uh, more hesitant. I am a worthwhile and important person because of my accomplishments. That's much of what's underneath this comparison. But are we really any of that? And can we say that we are that all the time? We can look at the economy and realize that it changes. Changes all the time. Our jobs might not be the same now as they were 20 years ago. Our assets might be different now than they were in the 1990s. If we rest our identity upon our financial status or our work role, then our identities will be rattled when those social conditions change. When numbers rise or fall, is your identity threatened? I assure you, you are not a number, not a big number or a small number. But what do we really have that is stable enough to possess? Is there anything that is stable enough to possess that won't decay and collapse, that won't disappear and change? Can you think of anything? Just recall all the sensations you've had. They're changing, right? The emotions you've had, they're changing. The thoughts that you've had, they're changing. The experiences that you've had, they're changing. The possessions that you've owned or lost, changing. And what happens in meditation? We notice things changing. When you think about the thoughts, how many thoughts did you have in that last 
35-minute meditation. It's frightening to count. But it's even more frightening to think if we multiply that by all the number of people in the room. If they had substance, if they had their shape, there'd be no space in this room for our bodies. It'd be filled with thoughts. And we were trying to calm our minds. What would it be like if we asked a random group of 80 to 100 people? Really scary. This is actually one of the most important insights that meditators have about their own thoughts because it's about thoughts. And it's that thinking very often accomplishes very little. Do you know that? Have you had that insight? And one of the main functions of thinking is to reinforce the notion of self. Have you seen the link between thoughts and I am here, I am here, I am me, I'm having this experience, I am me, I am, I am, I am, comes with the thoughts. Some people are afraid to stop reinforcing their self-concepts. But I assure you there is nothing to fear. When we're not grasping the eye concept, the experience of the senses continues. The present moment continues to be known. We still hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, think, remember, decide, but without a reference to who it is happening. We can experience the emptiness of things, not as a state of blankness, but as empty of self-grasping. The Buddha summarized what the liberated mind knows with the statement, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or as mine. So in a moment of contact, in a moment of experience with the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, we notice this activity of I-ing and mine-ing. I-making, I-ing, in Pali is called ahamkara, and my-ing is called aramkara. It's a verb tense, not a thing to find. It's an activity that we do, some, a way of constructing. Selfing is born. This selfing occurs as a process many, many, many times in a day, but not as a thing that we can ever find. It's a conditioned activity that occurs and ends. We can use our mindfulness and our wisdom to investigate whatever phenomena is occurring, whatever experience is happening, to see how we embellish it with the stories of I, me, and mine. And what about all those moments, though, when the sense of self is absent, when we're relaxed, at ease, experiencing the natural flow of changing events, when there's no narrative commenting on the story of our lives, when we're not tied to the illusion of possessions? Do we miss those moments, those moments that are void, 
of I and mine. I encourage you to open to those moments of ease, of peace. Because the tendency of most minds is to highlight the dramatic and to seek the intense. To build up a heightened sense of experience through faster dramas, stronger views and opinions, more flashy clothing, more dangerous adventures. And so I ask you, will the ordinary, will the simple clarity of non-attachment, of ease, of peace, of not-self, satisfy you. Abiding in voidness might not, be a make, might not make an exciting dinner table story. There isn't a club to join, and you're not going to get a certificate or a trophy. There's no awards plaque for enlightened people to hang above your desk or above your meditation cushion. One of, um, a, one of my teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, made an interesting comment. He said that we need to develop contentment with voidness. And so you might consider, will nothing be enough for you? Let's have a few quiet minutes, please. Is nothing enough for you? May all beings be free of the suffering of the comparing mind. May all beings realize the emptiness of all things and experience the peace of that clarity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.